on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad to be here. Uh, as always, this is an opportunity for our friends who may be listening to uh, call in with their questions. If you have a question concerning a passage of scripture you've been studying or an issue in your life or ministry that you'd like biblical counsel on, if we can help, well, by God's grace, we will. Again, the phone number locally is 843-525-1859. Our toll-free number is 877, the call letters, WAGP 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Rick, it's a hot day outside, but it's good to be here inside, and we're glad to be able to take people's questions. A number of emails have come in and uh, texts, and so let's go ahead and we'll get started. Absolutely. Neil from San Padre Island, Texas, would like to know if you have any messages on answering questions when witnessing to a Muslim or other religions may have about Christianity. Well, I don't have a message specifically to Muslims, though uh, right now in these summer months, we are doing a series on Wednesday evenings with uh, different missionaries coming in from around the world. And um, at the end of that series, I'm going to do a message on Hinduism. And then I'm going to uh, I've asked one of my uh, pastors uh, to do a message on Islam. So we'll cover, you know, the, the essential points in terms of uh, their view of God, their view of authority, their view of man, their view of salvation. And of course, it's totally different from what the scripture reveals. The Quran is a holy book that they use, obviously doesn't compare to the Bible. The Bible is the only book on the planet that God wrote and inspired. And in fact, I wrote a little booklet, How to Prove the Bible is True. It's available on Amazon or through Search the Scriptures. I don't make any money on it. I'm not here to sell books, but it will go through five divine proofs to show that the Bible is the only book God ever wrote. I think you might find that helpful, but it comes down to, here's the bottom line. It's an issue of authority. Where is my authority? Is it in the Quran or is it in the Holy Bible? And so if the Quran is true, then the Bible is false. If the Bible is true, then the Quran is false. So you have to choose. It's an issue of authority. And so the Bible is a unique book and that it alone has the um, fingerprints of God all over it. It's the only book in the world that has fulfilled prophecy, not by accident, because only God knows the future. There are no fulfilled prophecies in the Quran. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of Muslims, though, in the in the United States, and we're not to hate them. We're to love them. We want to reach them for Christ. 
Uh, fortunately, at least in our country, most of the Muslims are what we would call nominal Muslims, but that's beginning to change. Uh, you know, if you want, um, uh, it, when you think about Christianity, you have either real Christians, we call them of the born again variety. Of course, someone's not really a Christian if they're not born again, but we have to kind of put those words born again in front of Christian to distinguish them from nominal Christians. So from a biblical worldview, we want people to be born again because it's a necessity to enter the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said. Uh, nominal Christians will not make it. From uh, a practical point of view, you really want Muslims who are nominal Muslims and not true Muslims. What's the difference? The difference is whether they believe in the Quran or not. There's 109 verses in the Quran that sanction violence against Jews and Christians. So, you know, you don't want Muslims who really seriously believe in the Quran because it's very detrimental. Um, but again, most, uh, I would say the majority of Muslims in the world today are, are nominal. Uh, they've not really studied the Quran. They've just been brought up in it. And by the millions, they have been converted to Christianity. So when we see people dressed a little bit differently, I was going through the airport in Cincinnati the other day and I went up to the, uh, counter and you know here's a woman you know dressed in obviously muslim garb and she's working behind the uh thrifty rental counter they're, they're everywhere you, you know that kind of scenario would not have happened 20 years ago you can be in small towns you can be in big cities and of course there are large cities like uh, detroit and chicago where there's uh, you know hundreds of thousands of muslims uh, that are living and they are multiplying very fast. The Christians, unfortunately, in America are not having babies. The Muslims are. And they are growing very, very fast. Uh, Christianity is still, of course, the largest religion in the world. Uh, Muslims are the second largest. Hindus are the third. And God has brought a lot of these people to our shores. And we need to have compassion and love and, and do everything that we can to reach them for Jesus Christ. Good question. Um, so what I'm saying to Neil in San Padre Island, Texas, who's writing, is the uh, Wednesday night service. I believe it's uh, September the 13th, if that's a Wednesday night. Uh, we will be doing a presentation which you can live stream on Islam. And so you might want to do that if you're unavailable uh, to live stream the Wednesday night service. It's usually posted, what, a few hours after it's over? It actually, now we've got it down to just a few minutes. Okay, so there you go. You, you can watch it and view it at your leisure. And uh, he'll follow the same outline that I'm following on Hinduism. So we're, we're just dealing right now with those two because those represent the second and third largest religions in the world apart from Christianity. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. Also, we uh, had to make a few changes in our email, so our email is now tbl at wagp.us. Okay. If you have a, a question for the Bible line, that'll get right to us. Does the net address still work? or uh, no? no, we made a change in our website. If you look, okay. we've updated our website, but in doing so, we had to kind of commit the okay. net uh, address. Right. So anyway, wagp.us. Got okay. it. All right. Danny in uh, Bergenfield, New Jersey writes, where did the people before Jesus came go? I guess in terms of eternally did they go to another place other than heaven and was abraham's bosom a waiting place until jesus came well abraham's bosom of course is mentioned only one time in the bible 
It's found in uh, Luke's gospel, Luke the 16th chapter. So let me just read at least a portion of that text so that we're all on the same page. Now there was a certain rich man and he habitually dressed in purple. That meant he was super rich uh, to have a purple garment and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus, who is laid at the gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died. Lazarus died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now the rich man dies and goes to to Hades, uh, not because he's rich, but because he's an unbeliever. And Lazarus Scott dies and goes to Abraham's bosom, uh, which is synonymous for the place where believers go, not because he's poor, but because he's a believer in the Lord God. So there's several terms, uh, Sheol, Hades, hell, lake of fire, paradise, Abraham's bosom. So let's see if we can uh, sort them out for for just a moment. The word paradise is a synonym for, for heaven. And it is used uh, in reference to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Paul in Second Corinthians 12 is caught up into paradise. And he has a vision of heaven. Uh, we've been studying the seven churches of the Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7 Again, there the Lord Jesus mentions paradise synonymous with heaven. When a man in the old covenant under the old deal, so to speak, died, he went to Sheol. Now, Sheol is just a Hebrew term that means the place of the dead, but it's described both positively and negatively. There was righteous Sheol and there was unrighteous Sheol. Righteous Sheol is where a believer went prior to uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. At the ascension of Jesus, uh, a believer, uh, all the believers in righteous Sheol were emptied out and carried into heaven, carried into today what we call New Testament paradise, paradises. And that's what happens to a believer today. At the moment you die, you don't go to Sheol, righteous Sheol, absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. That was not possible until in time and space, the Lord Jesus had paid for our sin with his own precious blood, had conquered death through his own resurrection and provided the way for a believer now today immediately to go into righteous Sheol um, or into, into heaven, no longer righteous Sheol. There was also a place called unrighteous Sheol. Now the King James, <coughs> excuse me, to differentiate <coughs> uses not the term Sheol, though technically that's what the Hebrew says, uh, to differentiate righteous Sheol from unrighteous Sheol, they render it Hades. And that's not necessarily a bad translation because it communicates, um, but the text does say Sheol. So again, same Hebrew word, but a different place. So when you come to Abraham's bosom, uh, there is a difference of opinion about what exactly Abraham's bosom represents. Uh, those who believe the setting of the story is a period after Messiah's death and resurrection would say, well, it's synonymous with heaven. Those who believe the setting that's being described is prior to Christ's death and resurrection would say the setting is righteous Sheol. Makes no difference. 
uh, today we know what happens to a believer. But uh, unrighteous Sheol continues. It's called Hades in the New Testament. So it still exists. So when a man dies today, he is conscious, he is aware, he goes to a place called Hades. And that's the word that Jesus uses here in Luke 16. The man who is in Hades is totally conscious of all his surroundings, of the literal pain that he is experiencing. Uh, he, he is totally aware. And so it says um, when he pleads that he's in agony in the flame, uh, we read, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted and you are in agony. <clears throat> and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may be able to cross over from there to us. Uh, well, of course, again, he's very conscious. He, he, he begs, he pleads, look, uh, if I can't leave this place of torment, at least go warn my five brothers because I don't want them to come where I am at. And uh, Jesus said um, <clears throat> in response to that, he said, for I have five brothers. Uh, please send someone that they may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no father, Abraham, if someone were to rise from the dead, they would repent. And then Jesus responds in this parable, you know, again, prefiguring Abraham. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And by the way, that's exactly what happens. Uh, there is someone who, A, rises from the dead a short time later, Lazarus in the ministry of Jesus, and the Jews uh, refused to believe it, though there was proof positive and tons and tons of witnesses that were there at the funeral and now had seen him alive. So the point is, is that people won't respond if they have a miracle. People say all the time, well, if God would just come and do a miracle, I'd believe. Listen, Jesus walked upon the earth, did all kinds of miracles, and they attributed his miracles to the devil. So people don't respond necessarily to a miracle. They might if their heart is open, but not necessarily. And if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that's how they described it, then neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. So again, just in summary, Sheol is the place of the grave. There's two compartments in the Old Testament. There's righteous Sheol, which I take to be Abraham's bosom. And there is unrighteous Sheol, uh, which is also called Hades in the King James. And in the Greek New Testament, it's called Hades. There's coming a day when Hades will be emptied out into the final place. And the reason I take righteous Sheol to be Abraham's uh, bosom paradise and unrighteous Sheol to be Hades in that parable that Jesus tells. So I should say that some don't think it to be a parable. If it is, it certainly is a unique parable and that it's the only parable in which someone is actually named. But in either case, Jesus, uh, I don't think is looking down the Carter's time into the future. He is looking at the present day because he uses the term Hades to describe the place of torment. Hades eventually is cast into the lake of fire. So the final resting place is the lake of fire. And there are other places when Jesus uses the term, not Hades, equivalent Sheol in the Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew Bible. 
Uh, Sheol is always translated Hades, but he uses the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is the place of eternal torment. It's the place where Hades is ultimately cast into. It's the place where men will spend an eternity without the Lord Jesus. It's also called the lake of fire. So I hope that helps. I know it can be a little confusing, but just know today Hades or unrighteous Sheol continues. Righteous Sheol or Abraham's bosom has ceased to exist. And so today when a person dies on this side of the cross, they immediately go to heaven. All right, 843-525-1859, or if you have a question on today's Bible line, uh, you can email us at tbl at wagp.us, a new email address for that. And a caller says that they have many unsaved Jewish friends who believe that when Ezekiel 1, 4 to 8 references four living creatures, it's referring to aliens. How can this caller lead them in the right direction and explain that this is not what Scripture says. And I can appreciate that because, uh, I, you know, I, reading that first chapter of Ezekiel, you, you, I think it's like a spaceship coming down with these wheels and, you know, yeah. burning and everything. It's frightening. Well, um, let me give you the short answer because we are going to cover this issue as we work through Revelation. And so we are just uh, in a verse-by-verse uh, verse exposition of the book of Revelation it's divided into three parts, the things that uh, he had seen, and that's chapter one. He records this vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ, the things that are, and he records seven churches, and we're in that second section. We're coming to the last church, uh, the church at Laodicea, and then we will come to the things after these things, the future things that begin in Revelation 4 in verse 1. And so in chapters 4 and 5, we will see the living creatures and they are uh, a class of angels. They're not aliens, they're angels at the throne of God. So the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. You have a very vivid description of them in Ezekiel's prophecy, but they're mentioned in the uh, revelation and they are at the throne of God. And so there are different classes of angels, cherubim, seraphim, living creatures. Some would mix the living creatures in one of those two categories, but nonetheless all agree that they're angels. These are, these are not aliens that are in the throne room of God in Revelation 4 and 5, and yet these are the same creatures that Ezekiel describes. So there's a lot of wacko um, scholars, so to speak, Bible students, uh, prophecy nuts, that are out there that, you know, have spaceships all over the Bible. And, you know, in Genesis 6, you've got these aliens coming from outer space to cohabit, cohabitate with the daughters of men. It's just some really wacko stuff. But the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so Scripture does not permit us to go into those realms because other passages mitigate against it. All right. Very good. Now, we asked this uh, the last time we had our uh, gathering here on the Bible line, but um, we've only got, I think, a couple of uh, spots left. And uh, a hit listener in Hilton Head would like to know, uh, when is your tour to Israel? Well, the tour to Israel that's scheduled next is in May of 2018. Uh, so this question is coming in pretty often and people think, oh, it's in May of 2018 and I don't have to worry about it. But Rick just pulled up the brochure for me. The registration that uh, is that is opened in July uh, ceases on August the 31st. But with that said, if you really want to go on the May of 2018 trip, it's almost full. So we're taking 
um, 76 people. And I think uh, right now there's like 70 or 72. Uh, I haven't gotten the latest manifest that are registered uh, to go. So there's only room for like four more. Now, if it's something you want to do in May of 18, you could put yourself on a, a waiting list. And usually with a group that size, will be three or four who will have to drop out. Some health issue comes along, some uh, need of a family member that they need to attend to. Uh, so there's usually room for three or four more beyond the registration total. Why do we have to end the registration in August for a trip in May? Uh, because there's 250,000 tourists in Israel on any given day from around the world. So there's just so many hotels, so many bed spaces that they can accommodate. And uh, that's pretty much in terms of the Galilee, Jerusalem region where tourists, Christian tourists and pilgrims want to go. Uh, I am tentatively planning another trip in September of 19. So that would be 18 months later. Uh, so if you really want to go to Israel, I'd say go to searchthescriptures.org and click on the brochure and register online and get, get rolling because it's just about full. All right. Now the important question, yeah. which is more comfortable, May or September in Israel? Well, really, they're, they're, they're pretty parallel uh, months in terms of we're going early May. Now, as you creep to the end of May, it does get hotter. But early May, it's still very comfortable. It's very similar to September in terms of the heat. Um, of course, uh, Israel has five distinct geographical zones. So when we talk about heat, uh, it's different in Jerusalem than, say, down at the Dead Sea. Uh, so the temperature can vary from place to place. But still, it's, it's a nice time of year to go. You don't want to go to Israel in June, July, or August unless you like being in 115-degree temperature in some places. Just not a good time to go. Mm. Uh, might be a cheap time to go. Uh, it's hard to find a tour group that will go at that time. Um, but it, it's, uh, it's just not a pleasant time to go. But September, May, October, those are all great months. So, yeah. All right. Well, a pastor, uh, Pastor William Shuck, Jr. of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, writes, um, Pastor Brogy, I just wanted to thank you for your Answers in Genesis World Religions presentation where you stressed the power of God's Word involving salvation. I left convinced concerning evangelization. Pray for convicted, me. Convicted, I think or, it says. Oh, convicted. I'm sorry. Yeah. Convicted, yes. Uh, pray for me whenever God's Spirit leads. I'm a Reformed Baptist and was just curious where you stand theologically and also if you have ever happened to read The Death of Death in the Death of Christ by John Owen. Have a great day. Well, I uh, appreciate that, Pastor, calling. I just spoke at the World Religions Conference uh, with Ken Ham and uh, a number of uh, Todd Friel and uh, just uh, Ron Rhodes and a number of guys. And uh, my subject was Hinduism. And yes, I did exhort people to share their faith because, you know, the main problem in America today is most Christians are no longer sharing the gospel. Uh, we're going down the tubes fast because, listen, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can you call upon him in whom you've not heard? So people need to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. And there's people all around us every day who have not. Uh, so with that said, uh, your question, the death of death in the death of Christ. Yes, I read that. It's been a long time, maybe 30 years. John Owen was a hyper-Calvinist 
And uh, do I ascribe to his view of uh, limited redemption? No, I don't. So his, his, the basic thrust of the book is that, you know, Jesus shed his blood only for those who would believe. And I believe in an unlimited atonement. I believe that uh, whoever wants to be saved can be saved. And uh, they, they have to choose as an act of their will. So um, I hope that that helps. I don't want to go into great detail on a book I, I don't agree with. I know we'll meet John Owen in heaven. I don't, there's nothing like that, you know, uh, but I, I think he was wrong in terms of his view of election. You know, D.L. Moody had to contend with a lot of the Calvinists in his day. And a lot of pastors have what we call a sugar stick sermon. Uh, so sometimes there are pastors who, you know, travel and speak the country and really they're, they're preaching about 10 sermons. They're all sugar sticks. And by a sugar stick sermon, what we mean is, you know, a sermon you've preached so many times, you, you, you've, you've crafted it, you've, you've done this to it, you've added this illustration, you refined it in this way. And so one of Moody's so-called sugar stick sermons was, whosoever will may come. And at the end of it, a five-point Calvinist came up to him and they said, Mr. Moody, you know, don't you realize that only those who are elected can believe? And people are either elected to heaven or they're elected to hell. And Moody uh, responded, well, you know, if uh, if one of those people today who was elected to hell got saved, I think God will forgive me for what I've done. Uh, so he had a very broad view in terms of who can come to Christ. And I think whoever means whoever. And I think uh, that's how God intended us to, to understand it. That's a whole nother sermon. So. All right. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and Sue from Beaufort writes, would it be safe to assume that drinking alcohol, even in moderation, would never be in the will of God for a believer unless they were dying? Yes, I think that's safe to assume. Uh, Listen, there are two clear things that God forbids in the Bible. One is drunkenness. The other is the use of strong drink. Now, people ask me, do I believe the Bible teaches abstinence? And if you've heard me in a full blown uh, explanation of how I understand alcohol, I would say no. I don't believe the Bible teaches abstinence because God allows the use of alcohol in Proverbs 31 to give to a dying, despairing man, much like we would give morphine to say a cancer patient to ease their pain so that they do not suffer unnecessarily. That's an act of mercy. That's not trying to make someone high. That's uh, trying to relieve their pain. So I believe God gives an allowance for that. And he gave an allowance for the use of alcohol in reference to uh, purifying water. So in that sense, strong drink was a blessing before you can apply any text of scripture to your life. You have to ask, what does it mean to the original audience? And so what was meant by strong drink when, when God speaks so negatively against the use of strong drink, priests were never to touch it. Uh, why? Well, uh, because it made people high. It was not whiskey or rum or the distilled liquors. Some people say, well, yeah, you know, I, I just like wine, but I don't use strong drink. I don't drink whiskey and, you know, rum. And I know that's even more powerful. And so I wouldn't use those things. Those things weren't even in existence when the Bible is written. They come almost a thousand years after the completion of the New Testament. So again, you have to ask, what did it mean to the original audience? And so strong drink biblically is easily defined 
by both Jewish, Christian, and non-Christian literature of the day that defines what was meant by the use of that term. And it was just wine or beer that had fermented. And logically, you can argue yourself in that direction to say, no, I don't want to use it because the greatest of all the commandments that God gave is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God wants you to love him with your mind. I was engaged with a person just recently over this issue of alcohol, and uh, it's a question I asked him that I asked a lot of people. I said, first time you had a cup of wine, we're sitting at a table, glass of beer, and we both had these little plastic iced teacups, and what did it do to you? Just tell me honestly. Well, it gave me a buzz. I was, I was really feeling it, but it doesn't do that to me anymore, and that's the common response. You know, it doesn't have that effect on me anymore. It would take me three or four or five to have that same kind of little high or buzz that it gave me. Well, does God want you to be buzzed once to violate the greatest of all the commandments once in order to build a resistance up so that, you know, you can have a glass of wine without it affecting you like that? Of course not. That's that's just evil reasoning. But there's enough rationale today to say that it has the appearance of evil. It causes people to stumble. It doesn't glorify God. Listen, a professor from the seminary that I went to, Dallas Theological Seminary, was recently pictured with a a six-pack of beer in front of him. That, to me, is absolutely disgusting. You know, and one Christian who commented on that to my wife said, you know, I came out of that alcohol background, and I really struggled with alcohol. And if I were a new Christian and I saw that professor from an esteemed theological institution with a six pack of beer in front of them, that Dallas Seminary, by the way, prohibited uh, for any of their professors until about a year and a half ago, much like Moody Bible Institute. They've done something that's absolutely idiotic. They say you can drink, smoke, and gamble in moderation. And their rationale is that's the only way we can attract these new professors. That's just stupid. That's beyond stupid. Uh, If that's what you need to do to attract these new young professors, you don't want them. This is a turning point for Dallas Seminary. This is a turning point for Moody. I promise you it will. They will look back 25 years from now unless they change their minds and say, we opened the door at this point. Listen, scores of churches, evangelical organizations that were once conservative Bible-believing have gone liberal. And I believe that's the direction that a, a, a simple decision like this leads. So, no, I'm in favor of abstinence, number one, because it does cause someone to stumble. It's a poor example to people who are being saved out of the abuse of alcohol. And that's now widespread in the United States. Does it really glorify God? No, I don't think so. I think you're, you're, you're feeding the, the treasury of beer companies and alcohol companies that are wicked. They're wicked. Listen, they, they promote their drink on immorality, on illicit sex. And rightly so, because that's what it does. That's what Habakkuk, the prophet says it does evil men have always known that if they want to seduce a woman get her high you give her alcohol and maybe an otherwise virtuous person who had saved themselves from marriage will do things that they would not otherwise do 
That's the effect of it. So it doesn't glorify God. It causes people to stumble. It certainly has the appearance of evil. And God says abstain from every appearance of evil. But on top of that, it's not as gray as some people make it seem. Uh, it's strong drink and God forbids the use of strong drink unless you're mixing it with water. So like in the Didache, which is a second century AD pastoral manual. Remember, they didn't live in a day of refrigeration or preservatives like we have. And so if a pastor wanted to celebrate the Lord's Supper, he was not to use strong drink. It may have been a time of year when there was no unfermented wine, oinos. And by the way, the word wine, oinos, yayin in Hebrew can be used of both fermented or unfermented. So I'm not saying that all the wine in the Bible is unfermented. That's just stupid. That's just poor exegesis. The Bible's clear that wine could be fermented, but understand it. The word can be used of the same substance when it's freshly squeezed from the grape, what we would call grape juice, or later after it turned. After it turned, it was further qualified as strong drink in the Bible. And so in the Didache, lest they be guilty of using strong drink, they mix it in a four to one ratio, four parts water to one part wine. Uh, again, in rabbinical literature, you find the same thing, except it's in a five to one ratio. You talk to Orthodox Jews today who closely follow the scriptures and they will tell you, we do not want to use strong drink. And so we will mix it in a four to one or a five to one ratio, whether they're reading from the Jerusalem Talmud or the Babylonian Talmud, which is basically a recitation of oral tradition but it's rooted in the culture. And when you go to literature outside of the Bible, that is uh, not even Christian or Jewish in nature, they're defining the term in the same way. So the burden of proof to show that strong drink means something else is on a lot of my friends today. And you know, it's, it's very sad to me what's happening in evangelicalism because a lot uh, in not just the reformed faith now, because the Reformed faith has kind of spearheaded this movement and they're in the front seat. And so you'll have a John Piper who says, well, I don't personally drink, but if you want to drink, it's okay. Just don't get drunk. That's, that's nonsense. That's foolishness. That's folly. That's leading these young men down the road the wrong way. And I'll tell you, I've never seen a pastor that has God's power, God's anointing on their life that freely uses alcohol or encourages others to do the same. And I wouldn't want to be that kind of pastor. Yeah, it's sad that we see everybody that's uh, uh, in, in ministry today, many people in ministry today seem to want to be uh, people pleasers. Yes. And uh, rather than raising the bar, they go down to the le least common denominator. My wife just reminded me that uh, uh, she, you know, she has had two siblings herself uh, who have died alone in their homes as a direct result of alcohol. And uh, so we've come to learn that there is absolutely nothing good about having a drink, which uh, can start somebody on, on a road to total ruin. Yes, it can. Yeah. Well, Andre Klassen from Savannah writes, would you please explain your view regarding predestination or can you refer me to scripture? Maybe one of your sermons in Romans may help. Well, I think it would be helpful for you to read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, those are three chapters that our Calvinist friends use to defend the doctrine of election. So let me just speak for a moment about election. It's been a while since I've addressed the question um, in a concerted way, but uh, the fact is, is that the doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. 
In Ephesians 1, 4, it says he chose us. The Greek word is eklegomai. We get our word elect from it. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And the Calvinists would say, yep, there it is. You see, he chose us. He chose some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. Listen, the doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. It's not a matter of did God chose, choose us. The question is, how did God choose us? On what basis did he choose us? And so they use the words like foreknowledge, those whom he foreknew, he predestined and so forth, uh, to say that he chose one over another. And so they use the word synonymous with God choosing some to go to heaven. And so in choosing others to go to hell or just overlooking them. But in both English and Greek, the word foreknowledge, prognosco, um, can carry a very similar meaning. And so uh, think your way through this for a moment. Again, the Bible teaches God elects. The question is not, does God elect? But on what basis does he elect? And I believe God elects on the basis of his foreknowledge. The word foreknowledge is two Greek words, prognosco. It refers to something that God knew ahead of time. And so God knew ahead of time before the foundation of the world, those who would believe in his son as Lord and Savior and those who would not. And that's why he can write their names in the Lamb's book of life. That does not in any way change your free will. You're still a free moral agent. But you can go in the New Testament and you can find the word prognosco in reference to just something God knew beforehand. Um, in Acts 26, and so then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me. That's the verb prognosco. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. So Paul is saying here, the Jews knew me before, literally, uh, which speaks of prior knowledge. They knew of him before his conversion. Uh, Peter speaks to the fact that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That is the death of Jesus Christ did not catch God by surprise. He planned it. He knew that man would rebel against the living God. And he, in his mercy and grace, uh, established a way in which uh, we could be saved. Uh, Peter in second Peter three says you therefore beloved knowing this beforehand. There it is. Prognosco be on your guard. In other words, Peter says, I'm giving you some information ahead of time, something, you know, in front. So the Calvinist injects meaning into the word prognosco uh, that is really not founded in the scripture. And there are many examples in the Bible that I could cite where it does not carry that meaning at all that God chose some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. So you can't be a biblical Christian and say, I reject the doctrine of election because God elected us before the foundation of the world. The question is not if God elects, but how does he elect And God elects on the basis of his foreknowledge God, because he's omniscient. Uh, knows ahead of time who will believe and who will not. That does not change man's free will. If God didn't know that, he wouldn't be God. But in his foreknowledge, in his prior knowledge, he knew how men would respond to either what we call common grace or general revelation and how men would respond to specific revelation. And on that basis, God elects. So if you want a really in-depth study, 9, 10, and 11, 
why are those critical chapters? Because the way you understand Israel and Calvin had a distorted view of Israel is going to affect how you interpret ultimately what's going on in 9, 10, and 11. So good question. Uh, it's go to searchthescriptures.org, click on books of the Bible, click on Romans, and listen to those sermons. It's not for the faint of heart, but if you are serious and you really want to understand this issue, I go through all the verses that are used, and I think it becomes very clear. All right, very good. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Um, Pastor Brogy, my wife and I, are we volunteered to help uh, Josh and Denise with the re-engage. And I just wondered if you could briefly just explain to our listeners what that's about, and perhaps uh, we can get some more people in here. Well, re-engage is a, um, a, a marriage seminar that our church is offering in a small group context that will start in September and go through February uh, there's a number of couples who have gone through the training, some who are going through the training, and there'll be fellow pilgrims, as it were, with other couples, uh, some who maybe have a bad marriage and they want to make it better, some who have a good marriage and they want to make it great. There's always room for growth in the Christian life. And so um, many times marriages suffer today just because they don't know God's ways in terms of how to have a good marriage. You know, it's not by accident that a hundred years ago, the divorce rate was only one in a hundred and now it's over 50 in a hundred. Uh, what's changed? Well, among other things, certainly uh, we have become a biblically illiterate society. If you bring your car to me and it's running absolutely terrible and I discover you've never changed the air filter and rarely changed the oil and the spark plugs have 150,000 miles on them, I'm going to pull out the owner's manual and say, hey, look, the, the people who designed this car, here's some specs that they recommend you do it every so many 10,000 miles because it's going to run a lot better. Well, God is uh, the designer of marriage. He thought it up between a man and a woman. And he gave us some specific guidelines on how to be successful at marriage. And so among other things, that's what is going to happen. So uh, it's limited uh, in terms of the number of couples we can take and be about a maximum of 50 couples. It will be during the Awana ministry, our Bible club ministry. So their children will be taken care of. They won't need to deal with that, but we will have an informational meeting coming up in September uh, after the Sunday morning service. And uh, people who are interested can find out what the commitment level is and what's involved. And uh, they can express an interest at that time. And so we'll see how that goes. Appreciate the question. Let's go to the next uh, one that has come in. All right. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and a listener in Guyton, Georgia, uh, has the following question or comment. A few weeks ago in Mississippi, they write, a six-year-old boy was kidnapped and murdered. What an atrocity committed against an innocent victim. While I understand God will judge us all one day, I'm left wondering if his wrath is the same for all sin. I know the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, and therefore the ultimate consequence of sin is eternal separation from God. While Christ died once and for all and incurred God's wrath against sin, will there still be wrath against those who don't accept Christ and will be the level of wrath be dependent on the severity of the sin committed? Well, it's a, it's a good question. What you're really asking is, is hell the same for everyone? And the answer is no. Now, when the scripture describes hell in general terms, it's a horrific place. 
that no one would want to go. I just read earlier from Luke 16 of a man who was not necessarily an Adolf Hitler. He was just an unbeliever. And he's in a place of torment and agony, uh, wishing that somehow his eternal destiny could change. But will hell be different for different people? Clearly, when Paul writes to the church at Rome, uh, he deals with uh, different levels of revelation that people have been given. And so he speaks, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? There are people who are privileged like the Jew that's described in the second half of this chapter. In the third chapter, he'll say, name some of the special privileges they had as the covenant people of God. That was all expressions of God's kindness. Sometimes we say, well, the bottom has to fall out for people to repent. No, sometimes God just blesses us and blesses us and blesses us. And that's also designed to bring people to repentance. But because he says, this is Romans 2 verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. It's the word that is similar in Matthew 6, just a different form here. You're treasuring up wrath. Jesus said we are to lay up treasure in heaven, which by the way indicates that heaven is not the same for everyone who goes. In broad terms, it's a wonderful place for anyone who goes, but it's not the same. There are some Christians who are listening to me right now who are more faithful, more passionate, who are seeking to follow Christ more faithfully. They have found a place in their local church. They serve the local assembly. They tithe a tenth of their income to the Lord's work. They habitually, faithfully look for opportunities to share Jesus Christ with unbelievers. And then there are other people who occasionally go to church. They tip God. They don't tithe. They very rarely, if ever, share their faith. They very rarely intercede for the things of God and things that are of eternal importance. But they have been saved by grace and they show enough evidence and fruit that they are born again. Will heaven be the same for them as for the faithful Christian? The answer is no. So Jesus told us to lay up treasure in heaven. Well, this is just the opposite. These people are treasuring up, storing up wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. Now you're saved by grace. You're saved by faith. You're lost by unbelief. He that believes in the son has life. He who does not believe the wrath of God abides on him. But once you are saved, you are rewarded according to your deeds. Uh, when God speaks of rewards, it's not in reference to salvation. It's in reference to our service. And when God speaks of the works of the unbeliever, it's in reference to his evil. Uh, Jesus spoke of this. Uh, let me go over here to Matthew chapter 11. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. We're going to Bethsaida on our trip to Israel. That was where the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 took place. That's the miracle that uh, Mark uniquely records in his gospel where a blind man was given sight. They witnessed the incredible, mighty works of God. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon. Those were unbelieving cities, but it would be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment than for you. 
in you, Capernaum. Capernaum was the hometown of Jesus. Of course, he was born and raised in Nazareth. But Capernaum, when he, when he goes to Nazareth, of course, preaches in the synagogue. Their response is they want to throw him over a cliff. So he leaves that place and he sets up his headquarters in Capernaum. And miracle after miracle after miracle is recorded in the city of Capernaum. And so he says, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? Of course not. You, will dis- you shall descend to Hades. To, to, to the place of judgment. Uh, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Why? Because they had greater revelation than the people of Sodom did. Sodom had enough revelation to save them, but they rebelled against God. They went into heterosexual and homosexual immorality and God burned the place into the ground. And yet, somehow, in the perfect justice of God, hell will not be the same for everyone. It will be horrible. I'm sure it will be worse for an Adolf Hitler, who slaughtered six million Jewish people. I'm sure it will be worse for a Stalin, who starved to death 38 million people, uh, than it will be for some unbeliever who's apparently morally upright, but still lost in that he rejected Jesus as Lord. It will be horrible for anyone. So what I'm trying to say is that every wrong is going to be fixed. Jesus said in Matthew 18, you give the illustration of children. He said, listen, you know, I I had someone ask me um, who was abused as a child. They wanted to know where was God? Where was God when this was happening? I said, he was right there. He was watching what happened to you and the abuse that came upon you. And it broke his heart. Uh, And I read to them this text of scripture. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. So what does that tell me? Number one, God sees when evil is perpetrated towards little people. He sees that. Does he override man's free will? No, he does not. Then we would become robots. We would become puppets. We are free moral agents. But as free moral agents, there's total accountability before the living God. And so the Lord sees when even little children are hurt and he warns that, listen, it would be better for you to have a millstone drown hung around your neck and drown in the deepest sea than to hurt one of these little ones. So God is going to make every wrong right someday and there'll be a perfect expression of the justice of God. Will not the God of the world act justly? And the answer to that Bible question is yes, he will. Very good. All right. Uh, Liz Milford uh, from Bluffton asks, have you given a sermon on spiritual gifts? Is it in search the scriptures? And how do you find out what your spiritual gift is? Thank you in advance. Well, if you wanted to say just one sermon on the subject of spiritual gifts, you could go to uh, searchthescriptures.org, click on the Romans series. There are four central passages in the Bible that deal with the subject of spiritual gifts. It's scattered all the way through the New Testament. 
but there are four central passages. By central passage, that's a theological uh, phrase that pastors and Bible studies students and theologues use to describe a major portion of scripture that addresses a subject. And so the four central passages, they're easy to remember two twelves and two fours. Ephesians four deals with the subject of spiritual gifts. First Peter four, you could listen to a sermon out of first Peter four, where we are exhorted uh, is each one has received a special gift and employ it in serving one another. So there's a sermon First uh, Corinthians 12 through 14. That's a whole section on spiritual gifts in Romans 12. So if you want one sermon, go, go to Romans 12 and uh, you can um, click on the passage. I, I'm not sure how I broke it up, but it begins in verse three where he begins to deal with the subject of uh, spiritual gifts. So listen to that sermon. But if you really are uh, want to do something more in depth, then go to searchthescriptures.org and you can listen to one of our courses from the Institute of Biblical Studies. We we have a course of study called the Institute of Biblical Studies. It's 33 credit hours. We just finished the next to the last course on pneumatology, which some of you had heard aired on Thursdays at 11. Some of the courses have been aired like bibliology. And one of the courses is on the subject of spiritual gifts. And we go through really virtually everything the Bible says on this subject, right down to a test on how to discover your spiritual gift. So here's the thing is sometimes people take a spiritual gifts test and they don't really score, you know, in a distinctive way on any one of the spiritual gifts that are listed in the New Testament. And there are certainly some gifts that have ceased that were unique to the New Testament area, but some that are being given even in our day, at least 16 that are being given today. You have one of those, at least one. And if you don't score in a distinctive way, it just means that you probably haven't grown enough in Christ. Doesn't mean that you haven't been a Christian a long time. You could be a Christian 25 years and not score in a distinctive way because it would just indicate you're a babe in Christ and haven't matured much. When you hold a newborn baby, you don't know if they have mechanical skill or musical ability or what they have until they begin to grow. The same is true in the spiritual realm. So you could go to search scriptures.org and you can take the test online and it will score you uh, online. And that might be a good indicator to start. But I would encourage you to listen to the course on spiritual gifts. There's coming a day is part of the evaluation that we will give in heaven. We just spoke about rewards. Part of that stewardship is what you do with the spiritual gift or gifts that God has given you. You can't plead ignorance at the Bama seat of Christ. Uh, so listen to that course. I think it will be really helpful because it will not only help you to find your spiritual gift, but how to develop and employ that spiritual gift in the local assembly, which is where we are to focus as the starting point. Well, another perfectly good hour has slipped away and I'm glad you were able to be with us. If you have further questions, you can go to search the scriptures or, or and hit the drop down icon or you can email us at tbl the Bible line at wagp.us. Thank you. Thank you.